Welcome to the Uncovered Podcast, where we take a deeper look into the ideas, companies, and entrepreneurs that are creating the future and uncover the stories you haven't heard. Uncovered is presented by PJC, an early-stage venture capital firm committed to supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs. We are back with the Uncovered Podcast. I'm Matt Hayes, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob May. And we are here with Peter Mahoney, who is the CEO of Planet. How are you doing today, Peter? I'm doing awesome. Thank you. That's great. So, you know, how we usually kick these off is, you know, we'd love to learn more about you and your background and what led you to starting Plana. Well, I, I tell you, that it's a very, very, very long story because I'm an old man. Uh, I, I'm actually, I, I was told I'm an old entrepreneur uh, because I'm I'm now 54, right? So, But uh, you know, I, I think I read the median age of successful entrepreneurs is actually like mid-40s. It is. So. It's actually, there. there's a bell curve of return uh, by entrepreneurial age. And in founders, it's right around 50. So I'm on the downward spiral, but not quite. Uh, still not pretty quite, high. Still pretty high, right. right? Still reasonably high. Uh, but yeah, so I, I spent most of my career in Boston in tech. I spent 30 years working for real live companies before uh, before we created our own, uh, and uh, mostly in a, you know product kind of uh, general management product and marketing kind of roles. And uh, so I've been doing that around the uh, the Boston area for a long time. Yeah, and before you started Planta, you were. Uh, very high-ranking executive at Nuance, and what prompted you to make the jump? What, like, how much of it was the idea? How much of it was the, you know, the career path of hey, I, I want to try this one time? Like, walk us through that. So this is where we have to. We need the wayback machine. We, we have that sound effect. We're going to do like do 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 right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The so if you go way back, uh, I was actually literally born to be an entrepreneur, Rob. Uh, okay. So I, I was born on MIT campus. My my first home when I came home from the hospital at St. Margaret's in Dorchester uh, was was MIT campus where my dad was a grad student. And and as soon as he finished uh, grad school, he went and started his first company. And from the beginning, from as soon as I think he could talk to me, I guess or I could listen to him and understand, he was telling me about how I should start my own company and do because he was so into it and thought it was such a great thing. Uh, it, it actually ended up taking 50 something years for me to do it. Uh, but so it's, it, it started way back. And, and so I always knew I wanted to do it. And I never thought I'd be a big company guy, but I spent a lot of my career doing big company things. You know, I started my career at IBM as an example, sort of at a peon level at IBM. Uh, and then went to some smaller companies and actually started at, at Nuance, where I spent 13 years, when it was kind of a small company, uh, small-ish, you know, maybe mid-size. It was, it was a few hundred employees and, uh, and, and a little more than $100 million in revenue. And, uh, and then I sort of blinked, and, uh, and it was 14,000 employees and $2 billion in revenue. Wow. Uh, so it, it, was, it, it was one of these things you, you don't really – you don't really plan that out, right? It just kind of happened. And, but I knew from the beginning that I wanted to do something early stage and have done some early stage stuff before, but this is the first time all by myself, you know, founder CEO, uh, and literally by myself for the first, uh, for the first several months at least. It's the first time I did that. And, and I had been itching to do it for a long time. Actually, 
uh, quit Nuance three times. Uh, they kept reeling me back in. Uh, and, and then finally, uh, in at year 13, uh, they, they relented uh, and, uh, and let me go. And I ended up uh, leaving permanently to, uh, to start Planet. So, so when you left the the more corporate world, and you started Plana, where did you find yourself uh, recruiting from? Did you kind of go back into your, you know, into your Rolodex and kind of grab a bunch of high performers that you worked with in the past? Or, you know, were those people kind of set in their ways in, in corporate America, and you had to find new talent? How did you go about that? It's it's a great question, Matt. And I tell you that the, the funny thing happens when you leave the nurturing bonds of a big company. Uh, so when I, my, uh, most of my career, I was the chief marketing officer. So, and we had a big budget, you know, we were spending over a hundred million dollars every year. Uh, so people would always return my phone call, uh, when you're spending a hundred million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, it's really shocking what happens when all of a sudden you have no budget, you have no real company, you have no funding, you have no anything. You kind of find out who your friends are. Uh, and, uh, and you combine that with the fact that, uh, leaving Nuance, uh, and by the way, Nuance was fantastic to me, uh, and uh, and I had a great uh, separation. But I, I because of uh, my departure, which was quite generous, uh, I had a non-solicit. So I had this great network of Nuance people that I couldn't go after for about a year, uh, and and that was that was a bummer. And you may notice that about a year and a day after I left, um, I brought my CTO Dan Faulkner on board uh, because of that. So. But it's amazing that you, when you spend so much time at one company, your network is is really that company, uh, and then when all of a sudden you can't uh, you can't recruit for them, it's tricky. Uh, so you you find other sources. So in fact, my first employee was my brother, uh, and he kind of had to do it, I guess. You know, he's my little brother. He was obliged, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, exactly. So so that that's sort of the ma- the major major source, and it's amazing what happens as you. As you get a little bit more mo- momentum and people hear about you, uh, you find those crazy people who want to work for early stage companies, right? They, we find them and they find us. So it just kind of happens. And so before we get too far into the podcast, why don't you explain to us what Plana does and who, sort of who your target customer is? Yeah, so uh, Plana is a platform that marketing people use to build and manage their marketing budgets, track their, uh, track their, create their plans, track their campaign performance, et cetera. It basically replaces all the stuff you use in the back office for, for marketers, spreadsheets and PowerPoint decks and things like that. Uh, and, uh, and the interesting thing that we've done is we, uh, we focus on applying data science and machine learning to make the platform kind of magical. Uh, so it, that's where we do things like building really smart benchmarks and recommendations to, to help people figure out not only have a place to put their plan, but sort of give them recommendations for their plans. So the target audience is, uh, is uh, sort of mid-sized companies or most of our customers today. Uh, you know, we think of it as uh, people who spend at least about a million dollars annually in their marketing budget up to about 50 million or so. Uh, that tends to be the sweet spot for our customers. But we have some really big companies too who use it sort of in small departments. But the sweet sure. spot is them and the decision makers either you know, a, a regional marketing leader, sometimes the CMO, sometimes the head of marketing operations. 
So what's the why behind Plana? How, how did you get there? I mean, if you know someone's listening to the podcast, they're kind of like, interesting. You know, the software is, seems interesting, but but what's the why there? Did you experience this problem yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where the best ideas come up from is where people experience personal pain. Uh, in the I, I had pain in a few areas, many areas, but we can get into those later. Uh, but my, my marketing-specific pain uh, came in a few uh, primary areas. One was... I had this incredible lack of visibility of where the money was. Uh, and uh, so not knowing how much money was committed at any given time and what it was committed to was extremely limiting. What that meant is that if I wanted to change, right, if I wanted to say, hey, there's a great idea I want to fund, it's so brittle because everything is in like literally hundreds of spreadsheets spread across a company. It was really difficult to make those changes. So I used to go to, you know, you go to one of the marketing managers who you might want to take some budget from. That's always popular. And you say, hey, Rob, how much budget have you committed? And what does Rob say? 100 percent. Yep. Uh, every time. So having a little bit more visibility, getting better vi uh, agility. And I found along the way that there are some strategic things. Like the thing that kept me up at night was I was worried as, as a marketing exec, my job is to define the marketing objectives for the company and then make sure that we're deploying our capital in a way that moves us toward achieving those objectives. It's kind of that simple, right? It's, you can kind of, that's any executive job anywhere, right? But that's what a marketing executive does. And it was impossible to see what we were doing to achieve the goals. And I feared that the biggest discretionary spend in any company was being spent in the wrong direction. It was just spent on stuff. It wasn't purposeful what people were doing. Uh, so that was a big sort of existential sort of oh no that I had. Like, are we doing the wrong thing? So that that's one of the things that we wanted to build in sort of this best practices guidance capability into the platform. And then there are these tactical things like there's a funny thing happens with with marketing. If you put together a plan, especially if you have, you know, five, 10, 50 people working on a plan. Uh, they say, well, I'm going to go do that thing, and it's going to cost me $20,000. And it turns out that thing cost $18,000. Where does the $2,000 go, right? It it gets either lost. Uh, so it's sort of this the trapped budget that sits all throughout your plan. Uh, and part of what we do is we help collect all those little trapped bits of, of budget. It's like the old uh, 1980s movie, Brewster's Millions, uh, for the old people. Where I've seen that movie. You did? I love it, yeah. Yeah, where Richard Pryor goes and sort of finds a way to divert pieces of pennies and makes himself a millionaire and buys a Ferrari or something. So uh, so that, that's part of what the platform does. Interesting. And what's the experience been like from setting the objectives and, you know, having a lot of one-on-ones and team meetings and staff meetings and managing people to manage those objectives to like, I assume you go back and start planning and you're literally like, I need to write the email that's going out to customers when they sign up. Or like, I need to think about the specific messaging on the webpage, which is probably stuff that you hadn't done in 20, 25 years. Um, did you like it at first? Are you tired of it now? Was it hard to get motivated to do that work? What was that experience like? So yes to all of those things, right? <laughs> so it, it, it was it was jarring in a way. But at the same time, I, I don't think you can do the early stage entrepreneur thing unless you're committed to, you get excited about just rolling up your sleeves and doing stuff. And I know, Rob, that you've done that every time you've done this, right? You just have to do things. And, and I'm definitely not doing it again. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's and it's hard. Yeah. And, but and I find that 
some of the things that you get involved in, are, they are actually energizing, right? You can kind of go back to things you were doing earlier in your career and you say, I can't believe those people don't know how to do this. I'm going to do it the right way. And you think you're going to do it better. So it gives you an appreciation when you realize how hard it is to develop persona-based messaging for all the different personas and create all these personalization personalization things. And then you got to figure out the stuff you had no idea about and no interest in. So as an example, how do you set up a payroll? Uh, and yeah. how, how do you pay vendors? I'm like, oh, someone has to pay them? So, and how do you actually incorporate a company? So all of those things, you just have to grind through. A lot of it isn't fun, um, but you, you, you have to do it and you have to be excited about the result. The outcome is actually building something that didn't exist before. How much has Plana raised? So we've we've raised uh, about two and a half million dollars uh, to date, and uh, we're uh, we're actually very very close to raising another pretty big slug. Uh, which, depending on when this uh, podcast uh, re- uh, is is broadcast, uh, we might be able to talk about. So we're uh, we're we're raising another uh, sizable chunk uh, on top of that to expand. Had you raised money in the past? Before Plana? So I, I'd never done it as a CEO. Uh, I'd raised money as uh, I'd raised money as part of the team pitching for an early stage company before. I was the CMO uh, of a very early stage company. Uh, we, we did a, a, you know, a B round was the one that I was most closely uh, involved in uh, back in 2004, which is a terrible time to raise capital, <laughs> by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's funny. It's a very different experience when it's all you, obviously. And so how did you go about it? You know, coming fresh into fundraising and, you know, being a first time fundraiser with a lot of life experience, how did you think about it? And how did you go and raise that initial two and a half million dollars? So uh, first of all, it, it wasn't like it was one big check that someone just dropped on my door one day. Uh, so that the, the scary story is, so I, I, had to have this discussion with my wife and tell her that, uh, honey, I'm going to, I'm going to leave this job, uh, where I was making a lot of money and, uh, it was pretty stable and, uh, I'm going to go start my own company. Oh, great. That's exciting. You know, by the way, I might need to put a little money into it. Oh, you know, okay. You know, that's, that's probably all right. Uh, and so we agreed on a number, uh, that I'd put in for the company. Uh, and, uh, I'm now 12 times that number. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been there, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I put in a fair amount of capital on my own and, and some of it was, uh, my situation was that going in early, it was different for me because first of all, I'm, even though I have degrees in physics and computer science, I'm considered a non-technical founder, right? I'm not writing the code. Uh, and, uh, so Raising money as a non-technical founder is a little bit different. So uh, it it really was about going out to angel investors. Uh, and at the beginning, I was really reluctant to go get people to give me money uh, until I felt like I was really feeling the pain and I really believed in what we were doing and could validate it. So I wanted to spend my own money first. So I spent, uh, I, you know, I didn't spend all the 12x, but but I spent maybe five or six x on my own. Uh, and then I, I reached out to my own personal network, and that's where I started. And, and that's an advantage you have if you're an old fart, uh, is you tend to have uh, a collection of people who you've met through the years, and some of them do this kind of investing. Uh, 
Uh, and, and you send a lot of emails and have a lot of coffees and make a lot of phone calls. Uh, and, and that's how you start getting, getting the money together. So most of it was done in the early stage, uh, via personal network and then sort of one click out where they would recommend people cause they got excited about yeah, it. Yeah. Just so the, just so the listeners know, I mean, Peter doesn't look a day over 25, ah. so. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I think it's one of the things that, um, that a lot of people that live outside of Silicon Valley or outside of tech, um, and don't always understand the things that they read, about it. I think they don't understand how many failures they are. I don't think they understand how much risk is taken. Um, I've definitely been in a similar situation. Uh, you know, back up if I got to a point at, at one point where my co-founder and I had to put money into it beyond substantially beyond what we expected, um, particularly for where our resources were at the time. Right. And, uh, uh, and that, that it's stressful and, and it's hard and, you know, luckily it works out. Uh, but, um, but I, a lot of people don't see that side of it. Um, you know, I also I worked for a startup that ran out of money in 2008. So I, we 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 actually we had a party one year after it happened. But December second, 2008, the CEO said everybody did down and was like, "Hey, I know you guys thought you were going to get paid on Friday. There's no money for paychecks, so you're not." Um, which is hard um, to deal with. But uh, but I also think you know get to your point about digging in and doing early stage stuff. It is very fun, particularly when it works. And you can, you know, see the, the the building process of something, and and it keeps you very, very close to um, to new and fresh ideas, right? So, like, even with this podcast that that, that we're recording now, we're experimenting. We're trying something new. We're going to launch all these at once, like like they do on a Netflix series, right? Instead of having sort of the weekly, so cadence. people can binge. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to, you know, nerd out and binge, listen on uh, on Boston Founders. That's what we're, that's what we're going to do. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, and I think I think Rob that you can tell that you're kind of that person because uh, you're you're a prolific writer, uh, and and that takes a ton of work, right? The 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 amount that you publish and the quality of what you publish is is really uh, is really good, and uh, and I think you have to be that kind of person, right? So if you're going to build something early stage, you have to be willing to to do that kind of work where it's really focused thinking. Uh, you know, thinking, writing, ideating, refining, editing, getting everything else. I mean, that's really hard sort of particular work. And you have to be ready for that to, to really want to do this. Yeah, people don't understand sometimes like my AI newsletter goes out on Sundays. Literally, there's times I'm out on a Saturday night with a bunch of people. And I'm like, I got to go, I got to write my newsletter. And they're like, what? It's like, you know, it's, it's 930. And I'm like, I know if I don't get home soon, I'll be too tired to write it. And, uh, you know, makes you extremely uncool. But uh, but there's, you know, there's an upside to sending it out and all that as well. So yeah, that's fun. Um, and so how many people, how many people are at Plana now? And when you thought about hiring, you know, uh, what were the things you were most excited to take off your plate? <laughs> it's an interesting way to think about it. Uh, the, so we have eight people in Boston, uh, and we have eight people in Ukraine. So we've got a great remote development team in Ukraine. Uh, and in the team in Boston is about half go to market and in half product. So we've got, uh, Dan, my CTO, uh, Dave, my uh, product manager slash brother, 
uh, and uh, and Rich, who's our uh, head architect, uh, lead of engineering. Uh, so he manages sort of the day to day and the architecture of the the team in Ukraine. Uh, and then we've got a fantastic uh, UX designer named Dom. So that's the that side. And then on the go to market side, it's me. I put myself in that bucket. Uh, we have a we hired a CMO pretty early on, who's who's actually a co-founder uh, of mine, who was a super advisor for a while. Uh, and then we have two salespeople. And, and I think the, 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 after the core product people, the first hire we did was very purposefully a salesperson. Uh, and not because I didn't like doing it. To the contrary, I actually did like doing it. But I knew, since we want to build sort of a high-velocity sales model, mm -hmm. that until I could prove that we could get someone who wasn't a founder to sell repeatedly and get people to pay money and get people successful, then we weren't going to be able to prove that to investors. So I went pretty early on and hired that first salesperson. Uh, and and I'm, I'm thrilled we did it. And then we hired a second one just a few months ago. So how, let's let's dig into that for a minute, because I'm interested in your perspective as a, as a marketer um, working at different levels. One of the theses that we have here at PJC that we're investing across um, is this idea that sort of B2B buying is broken. Right. You know, we we use this model now that that um, is very much like sort of like, you know, content driven, trying to drive inbound, active on social with a lot of BDRs pounding the phone, cold calling people, cold emailing people. Um, and it t tends to work at scale for most places that have a reasonably, you know, a product at a certain price point. Um, but it sucks to be the recipient of that. And so buyers have this interesting challenge where on the one hand, it's like, you know, I need software. And uh, as my company grows, I, I do. And I, I just don't want, uh, you know, 100 pitches a day. And I don't like being pitched on stuff that's irrelevant. Like, um, uh, you know, like at Tala, we would get a lot of like, you know, these uh, equipment leasing things. And it's like, well, we, we don't have any equipment to lease, right? So like, why are you calling us? Do better research. Um, and so I'm, uh, I personally, and I, and I think also the firm here are like really looking for solutions to that. Um, what do you think about the state of B2B buying? I think B2B buying is, uh, it, they're probably in a better place than ever because there's more power and more access to information for a B2B buyer. B2B marketing and selling is really complicated and messy. And and as a B2B a prospect, so I make the distinction between a buyer and a prospect. Sure. Prospect, like you said, you'd get barraged with you know poorly formatted, poor grammar, you know, poorly targeted messages all day long. And and some of that is bad application of technology. Uh, you know, technology allows you to do wonderful things. It also allows you to do crappy things at scale. Uh, and, and that's what happens with a lot of, of marketing today out there is people just spray messages out there. Uh, and, and I find that the, the best thing to do is to uh, is to provide you know authentic useful messages and information to the target audience that you're talking to, uh, and and we find it's just like you were saying, Rob. It's that combination of of providing uh, a bed of awareness and and goodwill uh, that a BDR team can reach out into supported by. Because it's that combination that helps. So if people hear from one of our reps and they say, yeah, we call them from Plana and we make a, a marketing planning and budgeting platform. They go, yeah, I think I've heard about that. And I've seen that guy Peter and that guy Dan on LinkedIn making videos and stuff. They're going to be much more likely to, uh, to respond because we actually provide useful content to our target audience. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons we picked uh, 
this target audience because we know them, we're excited about them, and, yeah. and we can authentically give them uh, content and information that's useful for them. Uh, on a bit of a more personal note, you kind of went from being an executive to an early stage founder. And so what are some kind of tips and tricks that you have in, in terms of just managing life and being a founder and clearly having a lot of responsibility? And how have you kind of gone about that and prioritized and, and kind of balanced those aspects of your life? Yeah, I I wish I could say I did it all amazingly. Uh, I I think uh, let's see, one is marry well. Uh, I mean, I've got an amazing supportive wife who's uh, it, because it's half of it. And and Rob, I'm sure knows this. It's emotional support because it's incredibly stressful uh, to go through this process. Uh, and uh, and as long as you have uh, you know family or friends or any kind of relationship where you can communicate with people and and not talk about work because sometimes you need to not talk about work and get your mind off things I think that's fundamental right you need you need that thing in your life that can be a little bit of a diversion because starting something up is incredibly all encompassing and, and you can't let it cover a hundred percent of your brain or, or it'll kill you. Um, as far as sort of managing the, for me, I, I just needed a system. I went from having, you know, a, a wonderful, supportive executive assistant who followed me around and cleaned up messes and, and did things that I didn't even think about asking her to do in advance. Uh, and then all of a sudden I'm by myself. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I just had to make sure I had some good systems in place. I, I did the kind of things uh, for myself that I did for an organization at scale. I set goals for myself. I set some milestones and targets. I tracked along the way. I would literally, on Saturdays, I scheduled a meeting with myself on Saturdays, scary as that sounds. Cool idea. <laughs> and I'd go through how we're progressing, right? How are we doing against things? And and if you don't do that, you you really can can lose the the big picture. You can lose the storyline. Uh, because there's this blizzard of tactics that you're in all day long. And from time to time, you need to just sort of look up. I, you know, you, I equate it to I'm, I'm the master of analogies based on things I know nothing about. So I'll make a sailing analogy. Uh, and, and, you know, doing a startup is like sailing, right? You need to pick your destination. You need to say, that's where I'm going to go. And, and you need to have a plan. And there must be some kind of planny thing you do as a sailor. I don't know. I'm looking at these guys. They look, that guy grew up in Rhode Island. He must know about sailing. <laughs> uh, and, and then, but then along the way, you, you need to, you know, measure what's going on and you need to tack, right? You need to keep, and tacking is about making sure that you, you make an adjustment, keeping in mind that the final destination is st still over in that direction, but you make a short-term set of adjustments to get there at the end of the day. So I don't know if the analogy works because I know nothing about sailing. Neither do I, but I, oh, think, I think it works in, for, yeah. for our purposes. So we believed it, whether, you know, it could be totally wrong, but somebody will call us on it if they listen to the podcast, maybe. Um, t tell us a little bit about, you know, one of the things so many early stage founders struggle with is that initial messaging and positioning of the product. And you have those moments where you're like, it seems like it's kind of resonating. Do we try something different or do we not? And it's always hard for me to give advice to founders about how to work through that when like, you know, are, 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 you, are you just not targeting right and you're not reaching the right people? Are you reaching the right people but with the wrong message? You've had all this marketing experience. What's that been like for you? And do you have any tips for uh, figuring that out when, you're, when your product's very, very early? 
Yeah, I think it's, first of all, it's a critical thing to understand. And, uh, and I can guarantee you that most people get it wrong at the beginning. And most people are also overly married to their message in the beginning. Uh, and, and I did the same thing. I think we all do because we're humans. Uh, and one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they either simplify or they personify your target audience. So, you know, I, I look at what, what Plana is a, is a platform that, that provides great benefit to a CMO, uh, but there are a lot of different kind of users, and the decision makers sometimes aren't the CMO. So, uh, you know, it's funny. I go in and I, I demo Plana like I'd want to use it as a CMO, uh, and, and then all of a sudden I'd have these marketing ops people saying, well, what about that thing, and how do I manage multiple currencies and foreign exchange rate tables, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess we need to talk to you, because not only do we have to realize that there are features that you need, but there, there also are pains that you're experiencing that I might not have understood. Um, so I, I think it's really critical, especially in, in enterprise software, you have lots of different kind of users and influencers in a decision. It's really important to get around all the sides of, uh, of the application and really understand the, the perspective from, from, from everyone. Uh, and then uh, ultimately, I, I believe it's about uh, people need to believe in a vision uh, and get excited about some uh, realized future that they can get to and they think your product is going to help them get there. Uh, but they, they need to get excited about the f where the future is. And you can do it, in, you can do it more uh, effectively if uh, you can connect connect their pain to something significant that's going on in the world right now, right? So uh, you know, in uh, anything AI, as an example, there's a massive explosion of data. Uh, and so all these tools out there to help people deal with the massive explosion of data, right? So you can talk about, hey, this massive thing that's going on. For us, it's about marketing has this huge complexity because of all the data growth, because mm -hmm. of all the different channels and approaches people are using, and the tools that they've been using have just, they, they've, uh, they don't support the way people need to work today. So literally people are giving up and they're declaring a plan bankruptcy where they don't try to even track their plan to what the results are anymore. So th those kinds of things really help. Cool. So, um, so last question, and then we'll and then we'll let you go. What uh, you know, this this podcast is called the Uncovered Podcast, and we're always looking for pieces of advice that sort of don't get the the um, the airtime that they should. Uh, what's your one thing that's really stood out? The, your, your thing that you wish uh, more founders knew, or more founders were were told, or advice they were given, or or, or something you've discovered that uh, that might be a little bit of an uncovered secret about starting a company. Yeah, I, I think, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I, I think it's probably the most important fundamental thing that we did is we hired a sales rep early. Uh, and, uh, and I got this advice from, uh, from David Cancel. Uh, I was chatting with him. David is the founder and CEO of Drift, among many other things. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and he said to me that, hey, uh, uh, every time he started a company, he kicks himself for not hiring his first sales rep earlier. And in the, there are a whole bunch of reasons uh, why that's important. I mentioned the idea of of being able to prove that you could have repeatable sales that's from someone who's not a founder. But you really learn about your product, whether it's saleable. Uh, you you forced yourself to start to build in sort of some of the practices you need and go to market. Because I, I can tell you that 
most of the companies, because I've uh, not only seen, we've, I've acquired many companies through the years and seen some of the messes that we got. I advise a lot of early stage companies. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges that every early stage company has is they may have great technology, but they haven't figured out the go to market. Mm-hmm. And getting that through line between marketing, sales, get it, being able to really fully bring a product to market. Uh, and and have that whole go to market process done. Getting that done early is incredibly important because you find out all the mistakes uh, and you find out all the gaps when you try to do it. Uh, and uh, and it's the only way you're going to, in a reasonable time period, actually start to fill those gaps and and get a really good, smooth, repeatable go to market process. And so this is not you didn't start with like a senior VP of sales kind of person. You hired a somebody to hit the phones all day, deal with customers, and actually try to sell. It's just a, a rep. A- absolutely. And and uh, in a full stack inside sales rep is the way we think about it. Someone who can source opportunities, someone who can respond to our marketing opportunities, someone who can close deals, uh, support customers, make coffee. You know, really, I mean, they have to be real startup friendly, sure. but they're, they're a bunch of really smart uh, usually young, but not especially uh, all the time, uh, sales reps early in their career who just are hungry and, and want to learn. And you, you need someone who's got that just energy and focus to learn and has to be willing to work in a vacuum for a while because, of course, at the early stage, there's not a lot of process that you can that you can uh, support them with. You, they, they need to sort of figure it out as they go along. But yeah, that's the approach we took. Awesome. Well, Peter, thanks for being on the podcast today. Um, for those of you listening, if you, if there's guests you'd like us to, to have on the podcast or questions we should ask, please send those to podcast at pjc.vc. Um, obviously if you know any good startup companies, uh, please send them our way. We'd love to take a look at them, particularly if they're trying to solve this B2B, uh, you know, uh, buying problem. Um, and as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Uncovered Podcast. To learn more about PJC and the Uncovered Podcast, visit us at www.pjc.vc or email us at podcast at pjc.vc.